Welcome to Lab, the podcast. Christian participation in culture is an integral part of how the life and beauty of the gospel fills the world. This show creates space for us to share time with people whose lives and work do just that. I hope you're inspired by the conversation. I hope you're challenged. And I hope you'll join us in sharing the life and beauty of the gospel with the world. This is Lab, the podcast. Hey, welcome to Lab, the podcast. I'm so grateful you are here for the conversation. Our aim is to strengthen what James Davison Hunter describes as faithful presence. And at V3, we say life and beauty, a way of living in and toward what is true and good and beautiful, and and not for our own sake or our sake alone, but in the reality that our flourishing is really located in relationship, in between God and neighbor. And in that reality, there is something beautiful that appears and life-giving that appears, not just for us, but for the world. And it points to a bigger story. And that's what we're interested in. Today, we're joined by author and thought leader, Dr. David John Seal Jr. John's been here before for a conversation from his book, The New Copernicans. Dr. Seal is a writer, cultural analyst, and cultural impact consultant living in Philadelphia. And as I mentioned, he's the author of The New Copernicans, Millennials, and the Survival of the Church. His new book, Network Power, The Science of Making a Difference, it couldn't have been written at a more perfect time for the life and work of our young organization and for all of you who are leading or thinking uh, in these spaces. I know this is a book that is deeply important. Um, it's, a, it's a resource. We'll get into it and why it's so important. Doug Birdsall, Honorary Chair of the Lausanne movement had this to say. He says, I only wish I had this tool, network power, earlier in my experience of building global networks. However, it is just in time for leaders who must build and lead networks to respond to the pressing cultural, political, environmental, and religious challenges of our time. John, thanks so much for coming back for another conversation and another book. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be with you. Yeah, we just spent a little bit of time talking about Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, and I promise at some point we'll have dinner and I want to hear more stories about little cars that barely make it up the Alps and all of your experiences uh, with Schaefer over in Switzerland. But you're also friends with Mike Metzger, and we just had a great conversation. He's wonderful. How did the two of you meet? Uh, I, You know, I'm not sure I remember, except we're... Um working in the same space of uh, impacting culture. And we both are uh, students of Wilberforce and the Clapham sect. And so it was almost inevitable uh, that our paths would cross. Yeah. And so uh, we've become very close friends. We've uh, done some work together and uh, I worked for his institution and I'm a big supporter. I would think, say I, uh, I'm one of his mentees. He's had a huge influence in my own thinking uh, because he uh, helps me to recognize that we think first in pictures and that uh, and he's been a big student of Lewis in that regard. And he's influenced my writing, uh, you know, basically always start with a picture. And so even in this book, uh, Network Power, uh, the whole book was shaped by one picture. And it all came together once I had that one picture. And so I learned all that from Mike. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I I will say the same. He opened my mind to the power of pictures, and I recognized that intersection when I started Network Power. I've learned a ton, and I'm learning a ton from both of you. And I just want to dive in. Um, I just finished Network Power and love it. So I hope you had coffee already and you're ready to dive straight in. If we can do it, uh, let's let's go. Doug Birdsall says your book is just in time for leaders facing pressing challenges. And that might be a polite way of saying it, considering what I hear from a lot of young leaders here in our city and around the country as well as a headline I saw yesterday, and this jumped out, it was referencing a Lancet publication on climate anxiety, and it indicated that 56% of young people believe humanity is doomed, which obviously was a great headline to grab uh, readers. But I dove into the study a little bit, and it was there was a, a weight of despair a bit in that young generation. You say in a writing that I saw of yours, American society and the church are at a crossroads. And I think if you're paying attention in any direction, it, it feels like that. But I, want, I wondered if you could say more about that statement, American society and the church are at a crossroads. So say more about our moment and the challenges you are seeing kind of gather on the horizon. Oh, we'll start large and then we'll get a little smaller. So we start with America. Uh, I think the question of American as a force in the world is changing. Our global dominance has been put in question. We're now in an increasingly multipolar world and the role of America uh, as a force for good in the world is at a crossroads. I think everybody senses it uh, post the Afghanistan uh, debacle, in my opinion. And so, uh, uh, I, I will say I have never been more irritated by my government than what happened. And I'm a staunch political moderate uh, and independent, but I have uh, gotten so active. I call my state reps. I, nothing has upset me more than what's transpired in the last uh, month or so. And the fact of the matter is, it has raised a question. The role of America in the world, I think everyone recognizes, certainly our allies overseas recognize, as probably do our adversaries, that the state of America is at a crossroads. And more than ever, we need thoughtful, wise, mature, and uh, Lord willing, kingdom-oriented leadership to help us navigate this now, the same is true within the church. I'm a student of uh, young people and particularly millennials. I'm an expert on religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who are spiritual but not religious, people who are basically ticked off at the church. And uh, <clears throat> uh, frustration is one that I share. And so then the question becomes, how is the church going to respond to a younger generation that increasingly is disaffected from the church itself? And how do we equip people in that kind of context? And so I'm of the opinion that, as you know from my previous book, that almost everything said about millennials is wrong. 
and that they have a much better operating system than people my age, uh, boomers. Uh, that said, uh, I'm particularly heartened by the kind of attitude reflected by the Parkland kids, the Gen Y people, who basically, uh, millennials will basically, uh, no millennial likes to be called a millennial. They're all, they have an insecurity problem. And so they will quietly leave. But the younger generation, the Gen Y people, uh, like the Parkland kids. Uh, these are people who are basically saying enough is enough. And increasingly, I'm of the opinion that uh, uh, there's a big shift happening within the church. Uh, the metaphor I used in the previous book was that the church is like the Titanic running straight toward the iceberg. And uh, there's going to be a huge crash. And now I think that's going to come sooner rather than later. And uh, things are accelerating. But I think there's a huge opportunity uh, for the church. I think the whole conversation has shifted away from atheism toward neo-paganism. Hmm. And I'm of the opinion that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. and so now I recognize that that's pretty bizarre for some church people, but... That's what Lewis said, too, so I'm in good company. <laughs> um, but uh, so there's a new shift, and we just need to know how to capitalize on this opportunity because people now are haunted for wanting something uh, real and deeper and more spiritual. Uh, we don't uh, – you remember Lewis made the point that there's a difference between reason and the imagination. Mm that reason is the organ of truth and imagination is the organ of meaning mm -hmm. and that uh, the imagination establishes the conditions for reason. Or put it another way, uh, before something can be true or false, it has to mean something to somebody. Mm -hmm. And so as a consequence, we have a crisis of meaning among young people. And so the church has a huge opportunity to speak into this new opportunity. I mean, uh, the culture is setting up a condition that is exactly in the church's wheelhouse if the churches would figure out how to respond effectively. Yeah. And that's why things like your podcast are so, so, so important. Which, in, if nothing else, trying having space to try to make sense of from our space, these shifting things, the shifts that are taking place. I, I re was just reading William Burns. He's the CIA director, new CIA director. And he wrote a book on diplomacy that came out just before his appointment. And I was struck at just the, the frank, just pragmatic way that he talked about America as a declining superpower uh, or a, mm -hmm. a superpower in decline and the ramifications that was going to have globally as America retreated kind of from influence on a global stage. And we forget how significant that feels like those are big ideas to throw around, but, a you know, a declining presence of some of the ideals that have been held out, that's going to, the ripple effect of that globally is going to be felt. And as you're saying, at the same time, the church has been on, uh, it, as sh culture has shifted, the church's footing in that culture, which was already shaky, is wobbling um, to the point that it's, <clears throat> it's, 
I would not even say that it's tipping over. It may have tipped over already, but there's now a different conversation being had among young people. Yeah. So sure, yeah, yeah. It's probably worth mentioning that uh, the Roman Empire was uh, defeated because of internal corruption hmm. and uh, political paralysis internally, and by disorganized uh, Germanic tribes. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, that's exactly what we're seeing now. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's, it, it's all, this is my question. And one of the things I find really curious about you and your work is simply your presence. Because at this point in your career, you know, even where you get to hang out day to day, you could easily retreat. And I'm sure there's a pretty well uh, beaten path of the echo chamber academic circle that you could swim in and just be comfortable kind of diagnosing the problem or, you know, talking in circles around it, describing the conditions we're in. But you are showing up differently and you have a different posture. You kind of show up in the field with this different posture. And that's the case with network power. You seem to be optimistic, uh, maybe. is a, I'll let you say if that's the tone. But you, you show up as if it's possible for us to respond in this moment, to recalibrate our thought about power and about leadership, and you seem to be presenting a case in network power that it's time to get to work. It's time to reframe, but not despair, but just retool, recalibrate, and move forward. What, if, if I'm getting that correct, I want to know what's behind that posture. Why, are you, why do you keep showing up in the conversation instead of kind of just retreating back and saying, hey, if you are interested, I'm here. You can ask questions. Come find me. But I'm not going to keep working so hard to try to to cheer on the movement towards this third way, this new way? Well, it's always dangerous in the Christian circles to uh, identify and quote Karl Marx, but he wrote, <laughs> the, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. Mm. And on that, and on that, I'm with Marx. Mm. So I'm an academic activist. So my goal is to change the world for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. And frankly, if you're animated by uh, a kingdom vision, uh, historically, so the church wants to play woe is me and aren't we the victims and all this. Well, if you do a little historical analysis and look at uh, where the uh, LGBTQ gay rights, gay equality movement was, in the 70s and early 80s, they faced enormously more stigma than the church has ever faced. And they got their act together and made an enormous cultural difference in ways that I think are, from a sociological perspective, enormously impressive. Mm. And so I write an entire chapter about that. That's a history we need to learn from. And... Uh, and, uh, you know, tip our hat to for what they actually accomplished. So there are people in our own day, we don't have to go back to Wilberforce, there are people in our own day who have demonstrated the power of dense networks in ways that are enormously compelling. And the big problem with the evangelical church is we've been so tied to the notion that it is the individual 
that makes all the difference. And it's not. It's the uh, dense network. It's the group. It's the community. Mm. Uh, in other words, basically, um, reality functions when we think in terms of systems and networks, not isolated individuals. Mm. And uh, and that's and the reason. So I argue that. There are actually rules. There are scientific rules for the way culture changes. Let me pause you right the, there. And just, uh, the, the, the evangelical church has been not following them. Yeah. Let me pause you right there because I think, if I remember right, there was somewhat of a this. This may have been part of the critique, maybe that you had again, not against, but with uh, Crouch's work on culture making. Is if I'm hearing that right, that in your lens, our emphasis in the church has been on individuals impacting or or affecting cultural change, and we've we've tried to have that conversation. It maybe hasn't been the most robust conversation, but even that conversation is the wrong conversation. And you're advancing a different conversation. You you, you mentioned the word dense network with network power in that, that the way that change happens, the way that impact and influence are felt, if we're really looking and measuring, it's not going to come through just these in disparate in individual contributions, but there's something about network power. Is Am I hearing that right in your thinking? Yes. A Andy is a extremely gifted and a close friend. And I have written, uh, we had a long and torturous exchange uh, over his last book, which uh, his book on culture making, uh, because I think his view of culture is wrong. He thinks of, thinks of culture like a business guy, like it's a market. And so he's emphasizing, you know, making things. And uh, sociologically, there are, uh, it, social, uh, culture does not function like a market, and it doesn't fo function like politics. So when we say it's upstream from politics, it is both upstream, that is, it precedes politics, but it also operates on different principles than politics. Politics operates on mass mobilization of individuals. It's aggregates of individual action. And um, culture operates in a completely different way. And, uh, you know, Andy and I have debated this uh, back and forth, but I think that... Um, uh, and he would acknowledge that uh, there needs to be more emphasis on institutions than he placed in his other book. Um, but behind it is this larger discussion of, you know, dense networks and um, how dense networks function. In other words, we've said for a long time that the main actor on the stage of cultural change is the dense network, not the lone heroic genius individual. If that's, a, if that's true, then it's extremely important. And almost all of our cultural strategies are not following that principle. And so I made an effort to look into that uh, more closely. There is an entire discipline called network science 
you know, computer science, physics, mathematics, media studies, all of their work is in really dense academic books. And none of it, although their principles are true and what they're saying is basically that this is actually the way reality works, um, none of that is getting translated for normal people who are trying to run organizations in ways that they can use. And that's what I've tried to do is to simply synthesize some of that academic work in uh, this book. But basically, there is a science. There are rules like gravity or leverage. There are physical rules on how to make a difference in culture. And uh, so uh, those rules are ontological. That is, they're rooted in the nature of reality. You can't deny them without being ineffectual. And the reason they're true is because they're rooted in the Trinity. Mm. The reality is actually relational. And uh, we don't actually realize how powerful that assumption is. Uh, let me give you a thought of experiment. What do you think is prior in terms of the nature of reality, the node or the lines that are connecting the nodes? Hmm. Hmm. Now, almost every person you ask that question will hmm. say, <laughs> it's obviously the nodes. Mm -hmm. There's no network without the nodes. Mm -hmm. Except the uh, academics are actually saying, no, it's just the reverse. <laughs> Hmm. that the lines are more important than the nodes, that what is actually precedes. And so you have to ask yourself, now, why did I think the nodes? Hmm. Well, because we're individualists. We've been influenced by the Enlightenment. Hmm. The fact is that if you are sufficiently Trinitarian, you would say actually the relations of things are more important than the things themselves. Or as the academics put it, the relations are prior to the relata. That's how they say it. Hmm. Now, the fact of the matter is that, for most people, sounds just bizarre. Hmm. But it goes to show how deeply relational reality is. Uh, and that uh, relationships and networks are actually at the root of everything. You know, you can get into string theory and deep physics in 10 seconds in this conversation, but all of that is relational. The way atoms and electrons work, relational. In hearing you talk about relationship and how relationship's important, I'm thinking of Richard Rohr's thinking, and he, he thinks about identity and says that we begin by uh, kind of forming our identity by de describing or defining what we're not. And you open the book um, with kind of six approaches that you say are not effective. And so maybe as we kind of start to think about or imagine this idea of dense networks, you know, and I want to get you to paint a picture for this with Wilberforce and the community around Wilberforce. But in, in that idea of roar of defining what it is that we're looking at with what we're not, maybe you can paint some contrast with some of those ideas that you identified and said, hey, these are the, you know, here, you gave six of them, I think. You, here's some ideas that are not effective, but they, these have tended to be the, the way that we have approached uh, cultural change. 
Well, obviously, I do quote Rohr in the book, and I think he's definitely right. He's not a person that evangelicals often are uh, particularly comfortable about. But his book on the Trinity, I think, was extremely useful and obviously operates in the same spirit. Uh, Well, um, the first uh, bad approach is the notion that if you just get the right people into significant people in significant places of leadership, then everything will fall into place. Hmm. And so we have um, all of Michael Lindsay's work about uh, faith in the halls of power. Uh, so if we just get the right people in the halls of power, then uh, that will work. Uh, we just need to get the right people, you know, in the right places. And uh, look, I was on the, um, marketing team for Walden Media for Amazing Grace, Mm. which was a movie about Wilberforce. So I certainly was in the middle of all these conversations. But the fact of the matter is, as I write about in the book, it's not Wilberforce that is important as the Clapham sect, what emerged around him. Mm. Uh, And the woman, Hannah Moore, was probably as influential as Wilberforce in terms of making the Clapham sect uh, influential within. Uh, the second, of course, is the very common approach that is political, that we can achieve cultural change through political or mass mobilization. Um, a Christian view of that version is if we can get everybody to think in a Christian worldview, uh, then uh, the cultural worldview will change. Hmm. But all of that is wrong. I mean, is it is is it better? Uh, does it make things better? Yeah, but will it change culture? No. Mm. <laughs> now, um, so that's actually just not the way culture works. So it's not just getting enough people in the White House or people in the Supreme Court or winning political elections. All of the efforts of politics is basically been culturally wrongheaded, and I think we've lived long enough to know you and I have our whole lives. We've been playing these political games since the rise of Jerry Falwell in the 80s. And the fact of the matter is, we're more behind the eight ball now culturally than ever before. Hmm. And the whole movement of the LGBTQ rights movement happened during the Reagan second administration. Hmm. So um, as did the advent of MTV. But uh, so we've been playing political games uh, and not cultural games. Uh, the third one is to think that it operates on the basis of free market, and all we need to do is to make products and throw them into the market. Now, that's a better approach. This is a, uh, Andy Crouch's uh, argument. We need to you know, make things and rather than just talk. Now, is it better to actually do something rather than just talk about something? Yes, and if evangelicals been big on talk and not really doing anything yes is that an improvement yes but do you change culture by simply making products and selling them and thinking that culture works like a business marketplace no because culture doesn't work that way Hmm. i mean uh i'm a very much a business free market guy i have a business degree and so i'm very pro free market it's just that cultures don't work that way 
Um, I mean, it's a different animal. In other words, so we're playing spades when the game is hearts. <laughs> you know, uh, they're similar, uh, but actually, uh, if you think that the high trump card is spades and you're playing hearts, you're going to end up with a losing hand. Mm. Uh, the other, of course, is I mentioned the worldview one. Uh, and then um, positive psychology, if we can just help people have good self-esteem, that's obviously crazy. Uh, one that I uh, criticize, it's my sixth point, and I will say I have some ambivalence about. So I actually thought about rewriting this section. <laughs> and uh, and that is uh, when we get behind the cultural eight ball, pastors everywhere start talking about revival. Hmm. What we need to do is hit the easy button, and we need prayer, fasting, and revival. Mm. Now, um, and I have some very good friends who I will remain nameless, who basically take this position, which is, I think, too spiritual by half. And they are critical of people who basically say, well, uh, we actually believe in the fact that there is spiritual warfare, uh, we actually believe that uh, we need revival. We actually believe that we need to r- rely on the resources of the kingdom of heaven. And then none of this can be done on human effort alone. But at the same time, none of that mitigates the fact that there are rules in the nature of reality in terms of how culture works that we should pay attention to. Hmm. And so what happens is these people get too spiritual by half. When they're put under cultural pressure, they hit the easy button, the red button, says revival and you start hearing all this revival talk and that's because they're not actually willing to do the hard work of cultural change and uh you know it would be the kind of person who uh lives a terrible lifestyle and is totally destroying their health and then prays for god's healing Hmm. well what we need to do is to actually study the rules of medical health from the health sciences and use the best of medical skills uh, and pray for healing. Hmm. So uh, we end up having this kind of dualism that pits, you know, the really spiritual people are praying for revival. And the uh, and now I will say in today's world, the really spiritual people who are praying for revival are also framing uh, this discussion of revival in culture war terms vis-a-vis spiritual warfare. Hmm. So that's the um, Seven Kingdoms crowd is a problem because it's actually half true but half wrong, and it's counterproductive to the whole effort. So uh, I'm sympathetic uh, and out. So why was I ambivalent? Is because I actually believe so powerfully in the fact that we need to operate on the basis of the resources of the kingdom of heaven. And in that regard, I would follow very closely in the works of both Dallas Willard and Lewis. Hmm. Um, But, uh, and so I didn't really want to suggest that, you know, we have to poo-poo the need for spiritual revival. We don't. But the fact of the matter is, what is unhelpful is to be critical of people who are saying, well, culture actually works this way. We might as well operate 
on the basis of the way the world works because that's the way God made the world work. And uh, we, we don't tend to say that about medical practice and prayer. And so we should basically not have this kind of dualism. And we should basically take it holistically that uh, we need to be praying for revival and also working on the basis of the way God made the world to work. When you were talking about those six strategies, even I was thinking, yeah, it, it, the the power of and, you know, yes, and as Andy Crouch said, you know, should we write the Chronicles of Narnia? Yes, like beautiful literary contribution. Yes to that, and you should you should you also pray and recognize that there are you know, is a is a higher and deeper conversation that needs to be had. Yes. I think that's part of what the young generation, at least I'm kind of the bridge as a Gen X guy, but it, there's an exhaustion that happens when we see that we can't play well across these, that the lines don't matter. It's only the individuals and the powerful individual who is a revivalist and the powerful individual who is championing culture shaping and culture making. That's what begins to fatigue us, I think, because we don't see mm-hmm. any real fruit and we see that there is no, um, you're either in one camp or you're in the other camp and those camps are competing for resources and those approaches continue to win the day, even though when we look on the whole that they've been woefully ineffective at producing what we would say is life and beauty, this shalom, this flourishing that, mm-hmm. that we're mm-hmm. supposed to contribute. Is it just because... The, the idea of dense network takes longer to produce fruit and change. Is that why we default to these strategies, even when we know better? Uh, even as leaders who maybe are listening to this conversation, they go, well, yeah, I know better. And I know that there is it just because it takes longer to produce a, kind of a return on investment that we default because we have to survive and we have to prove our our, our worth. So we're going to, you know, it's it's easier to champion a one-dimensional approach than a three-dimensional approach. Is that what it is? Or is there something deeper than, than that that we need to address? Well, there's, uh, I mean, your question, there's a, like five or six problems. I mean, <laughs> uh it's you know we have the men movement, the monuments, and basically, it's hubris mm. uh, is driving a lot of that. We have uh, entire economic structures that are developed to support the immediate and the individual. Nothing to support the long term or the communal. So we have entire systems that have been built up that are reinforced with an ethos of the Enlightenment. I mean, basically, American evangelicalism is the bastard child of the Enlightenment. Mm. And, the enlight- and the Enlightenment is, in fact, uh, everything that's wrong with uh, the church today stems from that, in my view, and that we need to go immediately be post-Enlightenment, as our millennials and Gen Y, or we need to go back to the pre-Enlightenment period, uh, to the ancients uh, who didn't operate in this either-or kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. The minute you go either-or, you're talking about abstraction because reality is not either-or. Mm. Reality is both and. Mm. So if you need to talk in terms of black and white, 
you're talking about abstractions and you're not actually talking about reality because basically reality is multiple shades of gray and we need to deal uh, in the muckiness of that grayness because that's where reality is. And uh, we need to recognize with a much greater degree of humility that, uh, you know, faith and doubt actually go together. They're not an either or. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so, I mean, across the board, there's a mindset, uh, which I, in shorthand, blame on the Enlightenment. Um, Pascal is allegedly to have said, I can never forgive Descartes, and I'm sympathetic with that alleged quote. Hmm. Uh, I think that uh, now it was a missiologist like Leslie Newbigin who came back from the mission field in India and came back to England and said, the Western church is just in bed with the Enlightenment. Hmm. I had uh, Ron Sider ask me uh, when I was working with him, he said, why do we need to accommodate ourselves to uh, the mindset of millennials? Why is that actually better? Hmm. I said, well, it's better because they're critiquing our church's accommodation to the Enlightenment. Hmm. So we've already accommodated ourselves to the Enlightenment. And uh, they are post-Enlightenment, and they're thinking this is not the way reality works. And uh, that insight which they have gotten not by reading philosophy, but just by living in a post-modern post world, uh, is, is genius. Hmm. And so um, I just think uh, one of the challenges we have is to get past ourselves and to kind of slowly unpeel the onion of the enlightenment that has infused itself all around us. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the other characteristics of the enlightenment is that uh, uh, that reason is dominant, and that we th- primarily are thinking things? Well, that's actually not true. Uh, the imagination precedes reason, hmm. and uh, we are lovers before we are thinkers. Uh, and uh, people like James K. A. Smith, people like Mike Metzger, are harping away on these kind of things. All of these are critiques of the Enlightenment. And so the fact of the matter is, uh, this book, The Dense Network, takes on the one aspect that we tend to think of individual action as being the the key, and we need to be a certain kind of individual. Now, there is a slight caveat. Dense networks need a catalytic leader. Hmm. But it needs a leader who gets out of the way and returns authority to the network. Now, ironically... In this book, I celebrate the leadership style of Black Lives Matter. Hmm. Now, I recognize that can be controversial, particularly today. Uh, This was actually written a year ago uh, when it was a little less controversial. But the fact of the matter is a year ago when all the cities were burning and Black Lives Matter was on the front of everything and we were kind of put off by the... uh, the uh, police brutality that we saw in our face. What was interesting is none of the three founders of the Black Lives Matter movement were ever quoted. It was always 
leadership on the ground. That is, it was the Dense Network people that were quoted. Now, if uh, American evangelicalism got its 15 minutes of fame in the public eye, I can assure you that our uh, institutional leaders would not stay out of the picture. Mm. They would they would move to the camera so fast to make your head spin. The fact of the matter is, it was the dense network that was important, not the leadership. They were catalytic leaders who returned authority to the network. Now, that is not in the DNA of evangelical leaders or church pastors um, at all. Mm. Um, I mean, basically, we have churches that have you know, life-size cardboard cutouts of their pastor in the foyer of the church. And like, you know, unbelievable celebrity consumerism that is dominating the way we think about, you know, uh, pastoral leadership or, uh, and the entire book industry in America is based on celebrity Hmm. and it's based on individuals and piety. So you mix those three together, you get the American book, uh, Christian book selling market. Um, I couldn't get one publisher to think through how they were like, who's this book going to be for Mm. Uh, about groups? I can only think in terms of individuals. Mm. I was like, well, I think you're part of the problem, actually. Mm. (laughs) You've you've drunk the same Kool-Aid. So we have an entire system around us. That is uh, bought in, you know, buys into this. And what's tragic about it is that it's neither biblical, that is not Trinitarian, and is not the way the world works. And as a consequence, we're not being effective in society. And then we want to wring our hands and say, oh, woe is me. We're losing the culture. We're losing the next generation. Well, wake up and follow the rules of the way the world works. And mm-hmm. we'll be much closer. So I'm optimistic if we can get past ourselves. Hmm. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Hirsch's work. And he's done a lot of thinking on just the the fivefold ministry gifts in Ephesians. And it's interesting that you talk about catalytic, catalytic leadership. He talks about apostolic leadership. Basically, has to, there there is something, someone who's gifted to open the door but that simply opens the door to the next level of gifting or the next type of gifting, which opens the door to the next type, which opens the door to the next type, and they all work in concert yeah, together. That's right. But right. it's predicated on that catalytic leader. And but it has to be a door opening posture rather than a you know, a, a leader who gives back you know, gives the authority and gives um into the network rather than um drawing from. And that's a that's going to be a tough one. It is a tough one. I, I know working with churches, struggling because we haven't seen models where it's been, we, we just can't see it. We haven't seen good examples of this working. Nope. You nope. put Wilberforce and the Clapton sect out as an example. Talk really quick for people who are, I mean, Wilberforce should trigger everybody's imagination. We know who that character is, but less familiar to us is the the network around him. Talk really just quickly about why that's such a powerful example and and what we can learn from the relationship between Wilberforce, who is a force, that character, everybody knows the character, 
but also in relationship to the group? Well, there was a bunch of uh, wealthy, uh, well-positioned, elite, evangelical Anglicans all moved into the same neighborhood. Uh, they ended up all, uh, they were best friends, and this was in the days before the internet and before telephones. And so the fact that they all lived in close proximity was enormously important in the way they galvanized together. And eventually, a lot of them uh, married each other, and uh, there was just a whole network of relationships in this uh, neighborhood community located about four miles south of downtown London. Called, the neighborhood was called Clapham. And they, there was a church there. And um, they all became very concerned about uh, the issue of slavery, among a host of other issues. And uh, one of the people was wealthy business guy, had a big house, and it had a big room and a big library. And they would meet there and discuss late into the night uh, how they could make a difference in society. Uh, in this group included uh, artists and playwrights, uh, people like Hannah Moore, and uh, they had a huge dis influence on changing uh, the culture of England and also the politics around slavery in a battle that took them basically their entire lives. I mean, hmm. um, I mean, 40 years, you know, basically. And uh, now, um, you know, it wasn't perfect. And, it w and in the case of the Clapham sect, to be totally academically honest, it wasn't self-consciously put together as a dense network. Mm -hmm. In other words, it wasn't like they said, okay, we need to start a dense network, so let's all do this and this and this. No, it just happened. Uh, but it happened in a way, uh, you could say providentially, that made an enormous cultural difference. The thing, though, that we see is whenever there are these big shifts in cultural change, it's always the same pattern. Whether it's the rise of Christianity, uh, Rodney Stark says what? Dense network of elites. Mm. Uh I'm uh, teaching a class on uh, Timothy. Timothy was the lead pastor, a protege of Paul's, and uh, was the lead pastor in Ephesus, which was a major port city and a major trade route. And he was the pastor of the network in Ephesus. Hmm. Uh Paul uh, connected all these networks by, uh, you know, he walked 10,000 miles in his life um, connecting these networks. But if the rise of Christianity happened because of people uh, in center institutions, uh, the advent of the admission of Jews into elite universities, again, dense network. The civil rights movement, again, dense network. The LGBTQ equality movement, dense network. Uh, the Federalist Society and its in on originalism in the Supreme Court, dense network. In other words, every time there is a major cultural shift, 
it's not because some individual stood up and got on his soapbox. It's because somebody galvanized a group of people to make a difference together. I think for all of us who are listening, you know, I opened with that idea of faithful presence. That's what we're hoping to strengthen in the world. And so, I hope you're listening from one or two angles. One is that we are all contributing in some way within these dense networks. Part of us may be people called to be a catalyst and to think differently about leadership another layer of us thinking about how do we participate and where do we put our dollars? How do we steward resource where it's going to actually impact and make a difference uh, and not just seem to make a difference or make a splash versus a difference? And so, for, no matter how you're listening to this conversation, I, I recommend this is, it should be required reading Network Power, The Science of Making a Difference, just so that we understand it from the the inside out of what actually makes an impact, what actually makes change, as we desire to see faithful presence, life and beauty. My hope, my sincere hope is that 10 years from now, our kids are actually harvesting the fruit. They are walking in the fields that are full and flourishing because we have seeded a different way and nurtured a different way, and we've been committed to it. And this kind of cultural change, yeah, you, John, you say it's slow, it's difficult, it's incremental, it's unpredictable, but you say it does happen. Uh, mm-hmm. What what shift? And I know we're running out of time here, but. When we think about investing, when we think about philanthropy, giving, uh, how can we be, how, what questions should we be asking right now as we think about where to steward resource to help shift this change, right? Because if, if we begin funding things that are, are built well or organized differently, um, I, I assume that that will help drive some of the movement towards this way. How can we start thinking differently within even just the the community of believing people who are super generous and want to steward their resource well? How can we begin to think about investing in dense networks? What what questions should we be asking? Well, obviously, I had to ask these questions because I was a director of cultural engagement for the John Templeton Foundation, and I was overseeing a portfolio of $8 million, and I had to figure out, you know, if we're going to invest this money, how are we going to make a difference? Hmm. And uh, one of the places that I invested uh, money when I was at Templeton was um, in partnership with the Sundance Film Festival, and I write a chapter about that in the book, but uh, they're an example of a faithful of being faithfully present in a center institution that's typically hostile toward uh, evangelical faith, maintained their integrity, and had a disproportionate impact on uh, the Sundance Film Festival. And is they came, the Sundance Film Festival came to them and said, will you partner with us? You know, how often does that happen that a, you know, extremely... LGBTQ pro-centric, transgressive film festival will come to an evangelical group. You're doing something really significant. All of our filmmakers want to be interviewed by you. 
um, we want to partner with you. You've got something we don't have. Well, first of all, uh, you have to earn the right to, you know, so I tell the story of how all that happened, but mm. it's unbelievable. And so I look for places where people are really trying to serve the common good and uh, really trying to build in, uh, build into, particularly into reality-defining institutions hmm. um, and, and, and center institutions or center place, places that, you know, actually are having significant conversations. Most of the time, the church plays ball in the church league. We talk to ourselves. We write movies just for ourselves. We don't actually try to win the Academy Award. Uh, although it's true that the director of the leading Marvel movie uh, today is an evangelical Christian. Uh, and so the fact is, is that uh, we need to have uh, much more influence in these center places. Now, uh, let me just be candid to say the science of dense network can be used for good or evil. Hmm. Why? Because reality works this way. Uh, the dense network that followed Clapham was the Bloomsbury Group, all comprised of the kids of the Clapham sect. Hmm. And the Bloomsbury Group was uh, basically the most bohemian, disruptive, and their whole game plan was to undermine evangelicals. Um, and so dense networks could be used to serve uh, really rabid culture warriors, or dense networks can be used to serve faithful presence. I actually wrote my last chapter, Dense Networks as Faithful Presence, because I did not want it to be serving, you know, a culture warrior posture, mm. but I wanted it to be serving the common good in ways that were genuinely implementing uh, shalom within societies. The other thing to say is that you can have a dense network of uh, housewives, uh, you can have dense network in a company, you can have a dense network. So not everything has to happen at a national level. Mm -hmm. all, all, all the principles can be localized into whatever field your sphere of influence is. So in other words, you, your sphere of influence may be wide or small, the principles all operate the same way. At the end of the book, you invite us to be at least, uh, in your words, a constructive influence of shalom and the common good within our neighborhood, city, nation, and world. And I just wonder for the 56% of young people who think the world is quote-unquote doomed, and I know a large percentage of people, even listening to this podcast right now, just feel tired, like exhausted uh, of showing up and, and trying to participate in that, uh, just the influ having influence of Shalom, that faithful presence. And they're, they're just tired. It takes, it's little by little, it's long, slow, deep. You are somebody who keeps showing up, keeps cheering on, keeps contributing in this space. Are there, before we have to close out, what are the habits and practices that you that keep you sitting down at the computer writing with kind of, I, I heard somebody say today the word rebellious hope, 
And how do you how do you fuel that? I mean, is it just good food, prayer, some good long walks, a lot of laughter? Like, what? How do you keep stoking that inner fire as we see the decline of you know global influence in the country and cross pressures from pandemics and political things and church culture, all these things that just wear us out and almost make us go, you know what? I'm ready to give up. What are the simple things that you do so that you can write well and think well and show up to these conversations? Well, I think it's helpful to keep the long view. And, uh, you know, God does. And um, recent blog, I quoted uh, Robert E. Lee, who is also not popular to quote today. (laughs) But uh, two weeks before he died, his uh, aide-de-camp uh, wrote him his uh, his aide throughout the war uh, wrote him and said how do we make sense of what we've lived through and the march of providence is very slow and we don't actually ever see uh, the moving ed but it gives us a sense of hope and so the fact of the matter is uh, we have a um, opportunity to just keep the long perspective God's in control uh, these things will pass. And uh, we have to keep the long view. And the issue is really not being successful. The, the, the thing is to be faithful in the small things uh, and to live for the day. Uh, the resources of the kingdom of heaven, grace is available to us for the day. Manna is sufficient for the day. So we don't need to be thinking about changing the world in 20 years or, you know, we need to just be absolutely faithful to what is put in front of us right away, and God's grace will provide what we need in that moment, in that day, and within the limited sphere of influence we have. And so if we can just be faithful in whatever that limited sphere of influence it is, then God will uh, use that in ways that we never know. Um, so... I, I look. I live on a farm. I live on a 250-acre farm, and I do uh, make a point of walking in nature every day. Uh, you know, Lewis too went on walks every day. He did not go on walks for the sake of his health, because he was smoking his pipes the whole time he was walking. <laughs> um, but he went uh, on walks to basically get out of his head to realize that he's living in a reality larger than himself, Mm. a reality for which God is actually in control. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, I just think this is a huge opportunity. This is the most exciting time to be alive. Uh, I think this is absolutely the most interesting time to be alive. Everything's at stake. I'm so excited about the challenges facing the church. I mean, everything's coming together. It's just hugely important. So my goal, I have maybe 20 years left, is to do whatever I can to equip the next generation to be faithful uh, in their life. I love it. And I love a 250-acre farm and the invitation to go outside. We always say it, go outside, be small. The story's long, slow, deep. Little by little That's is right. the way. That's right. And That's right. Um, we are so grateful for you, for the work you're doing. And I mean it, um, your presence in this space and the particular contributions you're making 
uh, are they're having an impact and they're multiplying. I can tell you that from just the conversations happening here in Tampa and around the country and the networks and spheres that we get to participate in. So thank you so much. And we're going to keep the conversation going. I would love to have a follow-up conversation on that generation after Clapham and what was it that was not lived or was not, you know, the, D- the DNA not transmitted down that kept that going. So maybe we'll put a comma on it and we can come back to it. But for now, the book is Network Power, The Science of Making a Difference. You can find it on Amazon. I would just ask, uh, again, whether you're a leader, you're thinking from a, a, an investment and philanthropy standpoint, or just seeking to better understand how to participate in the future, go pick up the book. If you can do an Amazon review after you read the book, that is always helpful. But let's dive in and grow and go together in this space and and in the pursuit of being a more faithful presence. So, John, here's to you. Thank you for all the life and beauty that you contributed and to all of it that's still up ahead. We can't wait. Thank you. It's been a privilege talking to you, and thank you for the emphasis you place on uh, long, slow, deep. I think that's the way, <laughs> we're, we're, whether we love it or not, that's the way it's coming. So we'll walk it out like that together. How about that? Absolutely. Hey, thanks for joining us for the conversation. We're so grateful to share this time with you. And even more than that, we're grateful that you make visible the life and beauty of the gospel. It's happening all over the world through each of you. So don't grow weary. And until our next conversation, make sure you like, subscribe, follow the podcast, follow us on Instagram, check out ViewVIVO to learn more about our work. And we'll see you back here for Lab the Podcast next time.